Hello, welcome to MonarchCast. We are talking about royalty. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And today, Claire is going to take us to the kingdom of Hawaii. At long last. I know I've been talking about it. I know, but... And also, like, I feel like maybe this is more like a winter episode, like when we all want to go to like a tropical environment. I'm I I want to go back to Hawaii. I won't lie. Now I'm like I need to go discover the in, the <laughs> hidden kingdom of Hawaii. I went a couple years ago and I did go to the Iolani Palace. So I feel like I've lived this. Oh, so you've <laughs> you've lived this entire story that I'm about to tell. So great. All right, I'll just hang up. You can you got it from here. <laughs> so before right. we get into this, um, do you have any royal oops from last time? Uh, you know what's really funny about that question is I have a list of royal oops that I meant to research and I did not. So I will probably have royal oops next time. Okay. <laughs> that will be a couple episodes old, but I had a couple things I wanted to check on and I just forgot. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I have a little bit of gossip. Okay. Um, actually today, one, one item here I am very intrigued about. Yeah. Okay. So today our recording is actually very well timed. I think we're mm-hmm. recording on January 13th. I'm sorry, July 13th. And <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> well, you mentioned January and that's where my brain went. Um, but this morning was the ladies final of Wimbledon. Yes. Which I was pretty bummed that Serena lost. We were um, wandering around Target and at the vet while this was actually happening. So I missed the entire match. But I looked it up I after. was asleep. Yeah. There you go. I was bummed, but I made a mental calculation last night. I set my alarm with the full understanding that I probably didn't want to wake up and watch a final at 6 a.m. Oh, that's so early. Yeah. It is. No, I we were we were at the vet and I thought to my because we had a 9 a.m. vet appointment and I was like, oh, I think Wimbledon's on. I'll check it when when we get home. And then we went home and I was like, we have to go to Target. We have all these errands to run because we're going on vacation. So anyway. Yeah, I felt very pessimistic, but I didn't want to wake up at 6 a.m. to watch her lose. Well, Uh. it's kind of a bummer because I know she's chasing that 24th title and let's be honest, the 25th title. And then I was reading an article the other day about how no one can really figure out why because Margaret Court's record doesn't really count. It kind of has a little bit of an asterisk next to it because it was in the um, before the Open era. So when she was going down to the Australian Open, nobody was going there. So she was just playing random Australians. And so they're like, yeah, she has 24 titles, but none of the Australian Open titles count. So Serena's already the greatest, but I totally get wanting to also come back and prove that yeah I think that's what it is yeah like I don't think it's about the number 24 I think it's the women can have a child and come back and still be awesome and like I feel like unfortunately for her I fully believe that but I feel like that's the case as an athlete you probably shouldn't be trying to make in your late 30s like no beef to Serena or whatever but like physically oh see I don't think it's physical I think it's mental because she's gotten to um she's gotten to at least three or four finals no she's gotten to the finals I just I was reading all the stuff about the woman who won it just being like so lightning fast and just like you know I mean Serena is like look I think we've all already acknowledged she's the greatest female tennis player of all time I'm not sure she needs to prove this to us but you know unfortunately athlete time is a little bit like dog years right like it's not your body isn't the same because the wear and tear and all of that and like the fact that she's still reaching three finals in a row is like astounding to me 
Yeah. I want her to do it. I I think she can do it. I think it's a matter of time, but like it might be mental. But anyway, that's sorry. That's not what we're talking about. Um, We're talking about the fact that Serena is friends with the Duchess of Sussex. Yes. Who joined the Duchess of Cambridge, who is the patron of the All England Club, yada, 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 whatever the official title is, Wimbledon. She's the official patron of Wimbledon. Um, They went to the singles match. And this is noteworthy because there has been a year's worth of gossip about how they hate each other and much like last year they watched the game they were joking with each other um also notable was pippa middleton joined Mm -hmm. them Um, and megan and pippa were seen getting along so um you know seems like smiles all around either it was a very good performance or these women actually enjoy spending time with each other and let's let's be honest if megan and kate are spending time together Pippa and Megan are probably spending a little bit of time together. Um, Most likely. Yeah. yeah. So I don't doubt that these women get along. They all have young babies. They have plenty to talk about. Um, You know, what I thought was crazy was like Kate was wearing a rewear of a Dolce & Gabbana dress and everybody was like glorious in green. The Duchess looked smashing in green and it was like, meanwhile, Megan cut a preppy figure in and I was like, Come on, like, come on, guys. <laughs> they both look great. Let's not do this. This is the 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 coverage that's not negative, but like you read it and you're like, but why did you write it this way? Like, it's so it doesn't make any sense. It's so strange. Um, yeah, I mean, they all looked fine. You know, Megan wasn't in jeans like she was last week, which caused a big scandal at Wimbledon. I she mean, wasn't there in an official capacity. No, it's. I thought the bigger scandal was that she asked people to not take her photo. Okay, if if that happened, yes, I think it's a little odd. Like, if you don't want your photo taken, don't go to Wimbledon. Um, if it was just one instance where her bodyguard said, don't take pictures, like, okay, fine, that's their job. I, I'm going to withhold judgment because I read 18 stories on that, and they all said something different, and I just thought, I have well, no energy and to not to get. To too off on a tangent here but the timing of that story was very suspect because the front page news that should have been happening was that prince andrew has a buddy who was arrested for uh like pedophilia and like all that stuff yeah so and i wasn't gonna bring that that. up not a not a word on the front page about prince andrew's connections to jeffrey epstein but megan asked someone not to take a photo at wimbledon and it's front page news so yeah and I think that was suspicious timing. If, if, it's, if we're talking about suspicious timing, then they all went to watch Polo and all of that. Look, I don't I didn't want to comment on that because I like to keep Sorry. this blog lighthearted. And that's just a really gross and heartbreaking story. So we're going to stay away from. Did you call us a blog? Yes, we're going to stay away from. Um, no, I don't really want to delve into that. I just feel like it's. It's more grossness around using Megan as a punching bag at the expense of her when other royals are doing far worse things. And it's a pattern. I, think, I won't lie. I think they've, if this is the situation that's happening, this is PR 101, right? So you have a really bad story brewing in the background, but you know that you have another story that will attract attention, generate um, headlines, generate internet clicks so you're gonna throw that person out there in front of everybody kind of like a pay no attention to the man behind the curtain look at this shiny toy up front 
if that's happening, that is the royal family's MO. We know that they do this. I don't think that they're necessarily generating negative headlines. I think that you, you know, because let's be, the negative Wimbledon stories didn't contain any palace insider information. That was purely spectators. Um, but that could be a situation where the newspaper is doing a favor and not running a bad story. They're running a different bad story because the story that they did run really affects nobody. Whereas the and story I, they could I have run that. Like, is I understand that as PR strategy. It's just unfortunate that it's yet again like punching bag Megan. But it's her turn, unfortunately. We talked about this. And, and I, I'm not trying to sound unsympathetic. But we talked about this last year. This time last year, everybody, nobody... People couldn't get enough of her. It was just story after story about how in we talked about a little bit of the racist stories, but generally speaking, the coverage was very positive. And here we are a year later, and it's taken a bit of a turn, and that's a pattern that we'll see. And right now, well, Kate is getting really, really, really positive coverage, but a year from now, she'll probably be getting very negative coverage, and Megan will be getting very positive coverage. And true, that is because we can't praise two women at one time. No, no. No, you can't at all. Not allowed, Allie. You haven't learned that yet. Ugh, if you no. if you compliment Megan, you must insult Kate. And if you compliment Kate, you must insult Megan. That is the rule. All right. Well, what else happened other than Wimbledon? So I actually read another really interesting story. And this is the first time that I'd heard of this. So I thought this was worth talking about. I saw an article that said, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth at the age of 95 is going to invoke the Regency Act and install Charles as a regent and basically step down as queen. And I think this ran in The Sun or The Daily say, Mail. Where did you read this? <laughs> I, I just saw a headline and then I like clicked through and um, I actually don't want to say what gossip blog I read it on because I think their royal coverage has taken a turn for the worse and it's actually... It's a blog I used to enjoy reading, and now I just read it, and it turns my stomach um, because I think their coverage has become very woman versus woman, and I don't like to encourage that, so I'm not going mm. to mention their name. But the actual story originated in one of the UK papers, and it's interesting because the Regency Act does exist, and apparently the premise of the story is that at 95 Elizabeth is going to say look I'm 95 I'm too old for this let's put Charles in charge but then uh-huh. we also have talked about repeatedly how she said this is for life so okay. if she's 95 how and able- many stories do you think are going to have the headline Charles in charge <laughs> a lot at least in the U.S. <laughs> um, but the thing is is that I think we're seeing her pass responsibility now I don't think that she's going to turn 95 if she still has all her faculties at 95 I don't think she'll be stepping down I think we'll see a continuation of the pattern that's happening um you know at 95 she may she may retire from public life I mean Victoria did that much earlier and it was fine the monarchy survived I don't know I just thought it was an interesting I think I think this kind of comes out every couple of years because I vaguely remember reading about this at 90 when when she turned 90. So, you know, if she gets to 95 and nothing happens, then when she lives to be 100, everybody will be like, when she turns 100, she's invoking the Regency Act. You know, I have no idea. I just, I read it. I thought it was interesting. I thought it'd be worth talking about. And I was curious what you think because 
I think we've talked about this. We are seeing a very subtle reorganization taking place. You know, we see all these negative press stories about the splits that are happening and the folk, the refocusing. And we've talked about how we think this is just a natural progression of the chess pieces are being moved into place. Right. It feels more strategic than like a result of animosity, right? I mean, whatever all the stories are coming out about like William and Harry not getting along and like, you know, or, you know, Kate and Megan not getting along, it does feel like this is a natural move to make when you're trying to set up the pieces for the continuation of the monarchy where the day Elizabeth does cease to become a queen, whether that's through a decision that she makes or whether she dies, you know, you want as much of the pieces in place as you have and having the households where you want them and functioning like well-oiled machines and not having to like hit the ground running and figure everything out as they go. This all makes perfect sense. Um, And what I also hear in these little stories is like, okay, at one time, maybe she had this goal of this is for life and this is what I want to do is be queen until I die. That sounds noble, but the realities of living to be 95 and having to do all of this are very different than assuming either that you won't live that long or that, you know, like living to be 95 versus anticipating living to be 95 to me sound like very different things. And she might be finding that, you know, as noble as her goals might be that this is for life, that she's just not capable of fulfilling this and you want to do the best you can for your country. And so she gradually passes off, you know, authority and responsibility, which she seems to be doing already. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I thought it was kind of, I don't know. But she might find that she gets to a point where effectively it doesn't make sense to call herself the ruler if she's passed enough of her responsibility off to Charles. And that's where I feel like maybe she would invoke the regency, like acknowledge that she's still living. I mean, that's what the emperor in Japan just did, right? Like he's basically emperor emeritus where you're still acknowledging that he's there. He's just not willing to take on the burden. Well, I think that's, so that's a distinction that I wanted to make is what we've seen a couple of monarchs do in the past decade is actually abdicate. We have the Spanish king abdicated in favor of his son because of a political scandal. And we have the emperor of Japan who abdicated. Those are actual abdications, though. I mean, that is stepping down and saying, I'm no longer king. Regency is something different. Regency is Elizabeth would remain queen, but all of the decision making lies in someone else. But that's what I mean. Like, that's the way to really live out the letter of her pledge. But in in actuality, spirit. But not yeah. the letter. Yeah, I get what you're or saying. Or sure, whatever, yeah. whichever version of those is. But yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of interesting. And so, you know, she turned 93 this year. So we'll see. Um, I mean, her husband is a robust 98 and her mother lived to be 101, 102. So I don't think I don't think we should count her out just yet. Um, no. But for today, so we've. This is going to be a very long episode, just FYI. Um, For today, though, we are talking about the Kingdom of Hawaii, which I have had this in the back of my mind for a while that I wanted to do. And then when we talked about doing our, 
I know we talked about doing non-Western kingdoms. Um, I think this counts because even though this is technically part of the Western world, for a very long time it was part of no world. It was the most remote island chain. And um, it's actually... I have read the most fascinating book, and I, full disclosure, have not finished it. It's called The Lost Kingdom. It's The Last Queen, The Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure. And I would recommend this book. I think it's very well written. I think it lays out the competing forces very, very well. Um, I didn't know any of this before I started reading this book, and I have been telling everybody for the past two weeks did you know that you know <laughs> this I mean I just think it's I knew that Hawaii had a kingdom at one point in time um and it really was a very brief point in time but it's actually a fascinating story and so I had said to you you know I thought we're in July it was around July 4th I wanted to explore this topic and it's kind of fascinating from a perspective of an American because we're very fond of saying, you know, in America, we don't have monarchy. We've never had monarchy. And that's true from a central government perspective. But that's not true that we, you know, we have 50 states and one of them has a history of monarchy, which I thought was fascinating. Just completely it really is fascinating. So that's what we're going to delve into today. So and also, I think just from the little bit that I know about the history of it, it's also like the incorporation of this monarchy into America speaks to this like uniquely American, America capitalistic sensibility. America <laughs> so. is so intertwined with this story that it's it's fascinating from being an American to read about this, and then also. We've talked about colonialism before. It's got all the hallmarks of that. I mean, America is so intertwined with this. And we're talking about a monarchy that didn't even last 100 years. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that Hawaii is a very new state, relatively speaking. Compared it's number to, 50. Yeah, it is number 50. It's the last state. But also in terms of like the timeline of America, it's fairly recent. And so... It does have the unique position of a history in the way that, you know, um, like, say, Washington State might not or even Alaska because, like, we don't like a lot of these corners were unexplored and Hawaii was explored and unexplored. But when it was explored, it just like the way we brought it in was very, very well, different. We will get to that. Yes. I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead. Yeah. I just think I so, Hawaii is such a fascinating it's story. really fascinating. And so because we're only talking about 100 years and because my focus, we like to talk about women on this podcast. And there's been there it was, seems like we do we do. <laughs> there was one reigning queen of Hawaii and she happened to be the last queen of Hawaii. So I focused a lot on her. But I will go into the history of the monarchy and the history of the Hawaiian Islands because I think context is very important. So this will be a bit of a long episode. But like I said, I hope everybody finds it as fascinating as I did because I was just reading this book and just shaking my head like, what? What? So <laughs> it's it's very interesting. Um, so the thing about Hawaii that makes it interesting is we're talking about a little island chain in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it was first settled by, I'm going to say Polynesians. And by Polynesians, I mean people, you know, originating from that part of the world, the Pacific 
ocean full of these island chains, Polynesia, all of that. Um, in, and they think it was first settled in perhaps uh, the year 200 AD. So let's talk about how far away that is. I mean, that is like 200 years after the death of Christ. Well, that's back. Actually, it's interesting that you call that date out because that's commensurate with that Japanese queen that we had a lot of trouble yeah. getting, like, you know, effective sources for because it was like 200 it's, something. It's a hell of a long time ago. Let's just yeah. put it that way. Um, and basically what happened is a group of voyagers set out from either Tahiti or the Marquesas, which I assume is some kind of island chain. I meant to look up where that is. Um, and they navigated by the stars, the wind, the migration of the birds, and even the changing color of the air. And eventually they found one of the most remote island chains in the entire world, which is... Is it wrong that I have colors of the wind? Oh, uh, I thought you might be picturing the plot of Moana. I mean, that's... I mean, Moana by way of Pocahontas. Yeah, there. no, that really um, influenced Moana a lot. But in Moana, you may remember that it was all about, we have to regain our exploration roots and all of that. Yeah, but, so Moana's I mean, happening these after These people, this. let me, and let me just say this, in the year 200 AD, these people did this in canoes, okay? Yeah. Canoes. They paddled through the Pacific Ocean. The island chain of Hawaii is 2,400 miles from the nearest continent okay they found one of the most remote island chains not only in the pacific ocean but in the entire world and they managed to find their way there and when they got there they found a literal paradise so there are on if, if you've ever been to hawaii you know it's beautiful but here's the thing if you've arrived on Hawaii in a canoe in the year 200 AD, you might be pretty psyched to find that there's no four-legged predators, no snakes, very yes. few biting insects, lush forests, waters teeming with fish, and fertile volcanic soil in which you can grow all the plants that you fortuitously brought with you. Um, now, it's not perfect because there's also volcanoes, which came to shape a huge part of the Hawaiian religion and culture, but... I mean, when you land in Hawaii, they have everything you need and not too many things that could cause you harm. So Yeah, the, you're like, no mosquitoes, no yeah. snakes. This is great. The population <laughs> thrived. Um, and they stayed that way for centuries. Uh, isolated, they built a very complex civilization that was very religious. The priests were at the top. You know, it's like any kind of civilization you might think that was almost kind of a theocracy but not quite so um you have a ruling chief but then the priests have a lot of power they quickly started to worship the volcanoes so the goddess Pele became a very important figure um you don't want to piss her off or she might rain hot lava all over you um their society was governed they brought a lot of the polynesian traditions with them but they developed their own unique society based on their surroundings and they stayed pretty happy and isolated for centuries until in 1778 so we're talking two years after the uh british lost their colony of america well ish i mean the yeah. war is still happening yeah but the British discovered this island chain and I 
would say discovered in quotes because as we just talked about it's already been discovered uh by captain james cook so you may know james cook cook's voyages he went all around the globe he discovered a lot (laughs) out there um but on this particular journey he wasn't looking for anything you might think to find in hawaii he was looking for the northwest passage which was this fabled passage between europe and asia Kind of like how Columbus was looking for a quicker way to Asia and he mm-hmm. discovered an entire continent. Um, Captain Cook discovered an island chain, which he named the Sandwich Isles. So if you've ever heard of the Sandwich Isles and you didn't know that those used to be the name for Hawaii, as I did, I was like, oh, the Sandwich Isles, that's Hawaii? Cool. Had no idea. Um, named it after the Earl of Sandwich. He also lost his life here in a skirmish with the natives. Which is also kind of cool. Oops. Yeah. Actually, it was kind of a weird story to read about. So um, I forget the exact circumstances of his death. But they, th- when he first sailed into the harbor, they thought he was a god. So they immediately, they were so friendly. They respected him. And then when they did actually kill him, they um, chopped up his body and sent it back to his ship. And his hands had been salted, like they think, to preserve them. And um, unfortunately, the sailors on his ship didn't see the honor in this burial. But it was meant to be as a gesture of honor. Um, but they freaked out <laughs> and, and hightailed it out of there. Um, well, it might be an honorable burial, but he still got killed. Yeah, yeah. It was it was definitely a clash of, clash of cultures. Um, but soon after this happens, now everybody knows that this island chain is here. What do we get next? Missionaries and traders follow, uh, bringing with them Christianity, Western customs and goods, and, of course, pestilence. And I like to refer to this as the white man's (laughs) trifecta. There's a really good Sarah Vowell book on this called Unfamiliar Fishes. Oh, yeah? Yeah, where she talks about the missionaries coming to Hawaii. Yeah, so they came in droves, and they were um, pretty successful. You know, uh, the Hawaiian people had been isolated for a very long time, and when they were told that if you're bad, God will punish you, they listened. Um, So Christianity had no problem taking root. Um, It's, I think, and I, I can't speak to this, but this is, to me, I was struck by how quickly they transformed the culture. So the Hawaiians prior to this had followed a really strict religious code of conduct known as kapu. And my pronunciations, if I'm doing this incorrectly for any Hawaiians out there, I do apologize. Um, but they had this code of conduct known as kapu that governed every instance of their life. And, for example, um, a woman and a man could not eat together. And um, if they did so, they would anger the goddess Pele and set off the volcano. So when they witnessed the new arrivals flaunting these rules with no repercussions, it was open season and they quickly abandoned a lot of their rules that had governed their society. They were also incredibly um, curious about the new arrivals. So... um, I was reading one of the things that Hawaiian women, you know, they were very sexually free and um, they would intermingle with the sailors and they called it, I forget what the term was, but it essentially means um, 
naughty sleeping or mischievous sleeping, something like that. So um, they definitely knew what they were doing. But as a result, they started um, basically um, having, you know, mixed race children and also dying off from the venereal diseases that they uh, quickly, quickly, um, you know, took them over. Um, In fact, a huge part of the Hawaiian population was wiped out as a result of this discovery. So when Cook sailed into Hawaii, the population is estimated to be around three to four hundred thousand dollars, four hundred thousand, sorry, dollars, people, three to four hundred thousand people on the island chain of Hawaii. Um, by 1890, a person. That's yeah, okay. a dollar a person. By 1890, the population was around 90,000. Wow. And this is because they were extremely susceptible to measles, smallpox, and venereal diseases. And uh, this is probably due to the fact that they were so isolated for so long. They hadn't been exposed to any of this. So generation after generation, they're not building up the immunity that might let you survive a bound of measles. They just, I mean, I read one thing that said they had a measles outbreak in um, the 1800s and like four out of five people that died were native hawaiians they just couldn't beat the diseases very similar to what happened on the continent yeah this might sound familiar (laughs) you know that's what i'm saying like we roll in we bring our sickness we bring our god and get in line and die basically is the uh the message um So one of the biggest impacts of this discovery of Hawaii is that it directly resulted in the formation of a united Hawaiian kingdom. So prior to this, the Hawaiians had followed a tribal structure with each island ruled by a chief. And then there would be lesser chiefs under him and on and on it went. It was kind of a form of feudalism, except that. I don't know that there's any other parallels to this because I was reading like they didn't have a concept of land ownership. The chief just owned all the land. And if you wanted to farm the land, you could. If you wanted to fish the land, you could. Um, You just had to follow all the rules that were in place. And so when they did eventually open up land ownership, it was a huge problem because the Native Hawaiians didn't claim the land that they were entitled to because they didn't understand the concept of owning land. They didn't even have a word for it. So to say it's feudalism, I'm not sure is quite correct because we think of feudalism as, you know, a trick kind of trickle down situation where it was a little bit more informal, but the chiefs were in charge and they were revered as gods. And despite occasional inter-island skirmishes the relations between each island was pretty peaceful for a long time and we if you've heard of the kingdom of hawaii you might have heard of kamehameha kamehameha is that how you say kamehameha well yeah i mean you could kamehameha is correct i just yeah all right i'll say it like that kamehameha Um, he's the king that conquered the island chain and unified the Hawaiian kingdom, but he did this with Western help, including a large supply of guns. Um, so I'm going to talk about Kamehameha because he 
kind of got lucky he was in the right place at the right time this intersection of western discovery of hawaii obviously they're very interested in what happens in this island chain um i think it helps everybody if they're unified into a central government and he's the lucky winner so kamehameha was born into the ruling family of the island of hawaii um, but he was actually adopted by the chief of maui and now we'll talk about this several times in this episode, but this is this traditional pra- Hawaiian practice of Hanai, which was, um, and that's H-A-N-A-I. So if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, I apologize. Um, I was this- trying to figure that out. I think it might be Hanai just based on the pronunciation of Lanai. Yes, I think it is <laughs> Hanai. Um And this is this informal adoption of infants between families. So this has been a traditional Hawaiian practice. They would adopt another family's baby and raise them as their own um it encouraged good relations and ensured the continuation of family lines because your adopted child could inherit from you and as the population started to die off and there was this huge instruction of all of these venereal diseases that they had never encountered before the hawaiian people also began to suffer from a huge problem of infertility So every time a baby was born, it was a huge celebration. Um, And so by 1795, so this is roughly 20 years after the initial discovery of Hawaii, he's the undisputed ruler of the island of Hawaii. And I won't get into the politics of that. We could do an entire podcast on how he became the undisputed ruler of the island of Hawaii. But he then decided to set his sights on the rest of the island chain. So he set and sail. Just, sorry, just for clarification, when you're talking about the island of Hawaii, you mean the big island? I mean the big island, yes. Yep. The actual island named Hawaii. Because at yep. this time, this is the Sandwich Isles. Yep. Um, he then set sail with an armada of war canoes and 10,000 soldiers and conquered Maui and then Molokai, followed by Oahu. And after several skirmishes and battles, by the year 1810, Kamehameha emerged as the king of the United Hawaiian Islands. Thus began the Kingdom of Hawaii. So it took a while, but he was definitely encouraged and supplied and armed by Western interests. That is undisputed so this is what i mean about the fact that we can't even talk about the rise of this kingdom without talking about america and to a lesser extent great britain was involved but by this point the united states is very involved in hawaii um kamehameha had some successes as king he unified the legal system and worked to ensure that his legacy was would continue after he died so his big goal was that once he died he didn't want the island chain to break up into separate kingdoms again he wanted it to continue as one kingdom um he had several wives and several children as was customary um and this is a big reason why he never actually converted to christianity because he wasn't interested in giving that up so as a result the house of kamehameha continued for decades Two of his sons followed as Kamehameha II and III. Those were not their given names, but um, for the most part, the um, successors from the House of Kamehameha, when they took the throne, adopted the throne, the name Kamehameha, much like we see a line of Georges in the British throne when their given name may have been something along the lines of Bertie. 
so the Hawaiian succession, though, despite the fact that two of his sons followed him, was always messy. So I've talked about the fact that we have these adopted children. They they also just have no real because this we're talking about a brand new kingdom. They never ever really seem to adhere to this structure of oldest must succeed to the throne. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly that happened in some cases, but down the line, it's it's like a, a almost like a strange game of pick and choose like oh my son but then my nephew but maybe my niece oh I don't have a successor hmm I'm not sure it just they just never had like a set system which I found fascinating because we've talked so much about how a king needs a prince and then it's a problem and here it was just a totally different way of thinking like whatever yeah someone and I think that's how the chief structure passed too you know it wasn't necessarily next in line it was next in line and most fit to rule but also maybe that's how you get the people on board is like you take the existing structure and you wedge it into this new idea but just with enough carryover that everybody's kind of like oh this isn't that different right so in any case as I said, he had two sons that succeeded him, and I'm not going to go into minute detail about all of these kings, but it's good to set the stage um, and demonstrate, you know, how fresh this monarchy was. So I'll give you some of the highlights. So Kamehameha II is best known as the ruler who did away with Kapu, which was this system of rules that everyone had to adhere to. And we had already sort of seen the... Um, chipping away at the importance of this but he officially got rid of it in fact he officially at a function sat down and ate with his i think it was his sister and his mother and everybody nobody could believe it and then after that that was it it was over um so this led to the destruction of temples and the demise of the social class of priests so we had talked about how priests were very important in this society and after this they were nobodies um Although he never officially converted to Christianity either. But the influences were definitely there. You know, these are the missionaries coming in and preaching and preaching. And they had an enormous influence. And their effect cannot be discounted. Because even though these early rulers didn't convert to Christianity, they were certainly influenced by this Christian way of living, which at the time, we're talking late 1700s, early 1800s, is a very austere, Victorian way of life. That's, I'm just mentioning that, that will come into play as well, but you know what I mean, like, just very rigid, no freedom, no personality whatsoever. Um, Kamehameha II was followed by Kamehameha III. He's best known for turning Hawaii into a constitutional monarchy as opposed to an absolute monarchy. So here you see we're only about 40 years into the monarchy and we're already transitioned to a constitutional monarchy. And I think that's Western influence. you know, Or the British influence. That, that's what I mean. Like they say, oh, yeah, monarchy is a great idea. Unify the island chain. But you can't have absolute power. We're not in. You might that. want a parliament to go yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, he um, signed the first constitution in 1840 and another in 1852. And he's also has the distinction of reigning the longest out of all of these monarchs. He was 20. He reigned for 29 years. Um And his focus was maintaining Hawaiian autonomy, but he did adopt many Western ideas. So from the very beginning, like we 
I've, I'm going to mention this over and over again, so get used to it. But the Westerners are, they have their fingers in every pot in Hawaii. They are so interested in what's going on. They have made it clear that they would like to bring Hawaii into the fold. Now, whether and, that's... Okay, when you say Westerners at this point, are you mostly talking about um, Britain? And United States. Okay. And I'm saying Westerners because the, the United States and Britain both have enormous influence. And some factions favored England, some favored the United States. But So it's interesting because England has the history of being, quote, discovered by Cook. But yet America, even though at this point the brand new country of America doesn't even extend like west of the Mississippi too much, like we've got, we're not very far We've got the geographical proximity. Yes. And the interest is there. So it's it's really interesting. It was kind of like a tug of war. And Hawaii's in the middle saying, yeah, but, but we'd really like to be an independent kingdom. That's what we want. We would like to stay the kingdom of Hawaii. So you see this back and forth throughout their history. Um, next, we see Kamehameha IV. And he was a new kind of king. So when he, when he arose to power, um, this is around the time of the American Civil War. And he had been to the United States and he had been treated, in his words, like a dog because of the color of his skin. He had suffered direct racism. A butler didn't want to serve him. He was asked to move seats in a train car. And he said, the only thing I could figure out was that I was just darker than everybody. And this is just like bizarre. I don't understand. Because in Hawaii, they didn't have the same. They had had so much intermarriage and intermingling. That's not to say racism doesn't exist, because of course, the white people coming to Hawaii thought these people were beneath them and savages, but they didn't have the experiences that you might see in the American South at this time, where people of color were actual property. Mm-hmm. So he was very turned off by the United States. So from the very beginning, he his, his whole thing was, no, I want nothing to do with the United States. And Um, we're going to embrace our Hawaiian heritage. Um, And so he was kind of a new breed of king. And that's saying, not really saying much, given the fact that we're talking about he's number four in line in a uh, like 70 year period. It's really not been that long. But one of the first things he did was he married a woman named Emma Rook. And she's notable because she was half Hawaiian, half British. And so they wanted him to marry a full-blooded Hawaiian, and he refused. This was his childhood sweetheart, and he wanted to marry her. But already you see the British influence in the upper echelons of Hawaii society. And um, so you have a half-British queen of Hawaii. But his his real, the, like I said, his reign is really marked by this resistance to the American an- annexation, which is already a topic of conversation. Um, due to the experiences he had while traveling to the United States. He dies and he's succeeded by Kamehameha IV, who is the last ruler of the house of Kamehameha. Now, here's where it gets even messier. He died without naming an heir. In fact, he's on his deathbed and he's literally looking around at the people standing around him and he's looking at his cousin and saying, oh, how about you do it? And she's like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. No, no, not for me. Um, so nobody had any idea what was going on. So 
um, there was something of a succession crisis at this point, and we will get to this. But I just wanted to take a moment to kind of draw some parallels between the traditional monarchies that we've talked about and what the Hawaiian monarchy was like. So as we've already just said, you see from the very beginning they have an issue of succession, um, but they very much modeled themselves after the European courts. So by 1872, the monarchy was incredibly European. They're dressing like the Europeans. Um, a lot of the Hawaiian customs by this point have been outlawed. The hula was outlawed. Um, the children are sent to missionary schools. They're raised as British and American children. They're taught multiple languages. They are instructed in Christianity. It's all about this austere way of living. And particularly Kamehameha IV's court, but this did continue. He really admired Queen Victoria and her court and copied the fashion of the British court as well as their ways. So basically, if any, it was sort of a WWVD. What would Victoria do? Um, that was kind of their unofficial motto. And it's an interesting mix because... They've been working to maintain these Hawaiian traditions in the face of this missionary culture that was determined to wipe them out. Um, and so the austerity of the Victorian era doesn't always mix well with the free love spirit of the native Hawaiians. So you see this tension in the monarchy of trying to stay true to their roots, but also emulate this European ideal of what a monarchy should be. And I think that that marks the... Um, issues throughout this entire monarchy is that they, they they had an identity crisis from the very beginning because they didn't have a tradition of one sole monarch ruling the entire country and then when they got that they didn't know what that was supposed to look like and so their chief structure doesn't really fit into the European monarchy model but the Europeans are saying this is the way to go and so from the very beginning, they just, they're pulled in so many different directions. And I think that that was their downfall from the very beginning. Like they're trying to be too many different things. Yeah, They're trying to be modern and traditional at the same time. And we're talking about a civilization that was isolated from the rest of the world for millennia. It's just, it's, it's just, it's just a bad mix. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but I want to go into this idea of the succession because Hawaiians had a really interesting view of family that just absolutely horrified the Christian missionaries when they came to Hawaii. So we talked about this idea of Hanai, the adopted children. Um, but this was a customary practice. So they would literally have a baby and another family would say, oh, we'd like to have your baby. And they would say, great, take it. And then that you know, the birth parents could weigh in on the decisions of the child's life and things like that. But the adoptive parents were the formative relationship in the child's life. And and they really didn't see this as a bad thing. I mean, you know, I think nowadays you think like, oh, my God, you just give your baby up and that's like totally normal. Like it's it's kind of like a really enlightened form of open adoption. Yeah. Um, but it was it's very really interesting, though. It was very customary, especially among the um, higher levels of society. And they just the Westerners couldn't couldn't get over this. Um, they just really didn't get it. 
so they really try to discourage this practice they were unsuccessful but what you start to see is as we go down the line of succession and as we move out of the house of Kamehameha we're looking at these children who are not direct descendants but they're deemed special through this Hanai adoption so after I call him K5 after K5's death the practice becomes even more important because the question is who's going to rule and whose bloodline should prevail so after his death you see William Charles Luna Lilo elected to the throne now I just said elected did you yeah. did you catch that I did what are we in Germany right so his nick that this earned him the nickname the people's king um, but here's here's what happened. He's a grandnephew of Kamehameha I, and he was Kamehameha V's cousin. And as we just talked about, Kamehameha V died without designating an heir. So they didn't know what to do. But as a child, this, um, we're going to call him Lunalilo, because that's what people call him. He's He was declared as a child to be eligible for the throne. Um, and this the um, people who are eligible for the throne, it's like an entire class of people. It's not like two or three, there are two or three people. It was very common to be say like, oh yeah, those kids over there, they're eligible for the throne. Yeah, cool. This is what I mean. The succession isn't really linear. It's more like a pool of applicants and you just decide who's best. So after much deliberation, it was determined that he was the best option. So he's essentially elected by this parliament that's in place because we're talking about a constitutional monarchy that he's going to be the king um and as a result his reign results in a more democratic monarchy um so you know he says well i'm not an absolute monarch i was in fact elected to my position so what do you guys think what should we do um he also worked really hard to improve the economy which led to the increased production of sugar on the islands. And so we will put a pin in that because we're going to get back to that. Um, And he worked really hard to create a trade treaty with the United States. Um, This wasn't successful. It was a really difficult process. Um, One of the sticking points was Pearl Harbor. Mm. The United States really, really wanted to get their hands on Pearl Harbor. Um, And the Hawaiians naturally didn't want to just give it to them. And that's what the whole, that's what the Americans wanted. They they wanted us to I'm saying us. Like I'm I'm on Hawaii's side us. Um they wanted the Hawaiians to give them Pearl Harbor. Free of charge. Yeah. Basically. Uh, the exchange would have been like not taxing sugar um imports, but I don't think anyone saw that as a very fair trade. Um in any case He dies in 1874 of tuberculosis, although his uh, condition as a raging alcoholic didn't help. And I think it's important to mention a lot of these kings we've talked about, they had suffered from alcoholism. Um, You know, the Westerners brought liquor with them. And um, I think this was something you see with the Native Americans as well. Um, They they loved it. And unfortunately, to their detriment, it just was used almost as a pacifying device um so a lot of these people suffered from alcoholism as a result um he also died without naming an heir you'd think they would have learned their lesson but he didn't um and this led to the rise of the house of kalakawa 
So I think I'm going to say that correctly. Um, I, it sounds, yeah, it yeah. sounds right. So the house of Kalakaua is, consists of cousins of the Kamehamehas. So after the death of Lunalilo, there were a few contenders for the throne, but the most notable two were Queen Emma, who was Kamehameha IV's widow. We talked about Emma Rook. She's half British, half Hawaiian. But she's, she's like, no, I should be queen. And a lot of people thought, yeah, you should be. Um, but ultimately, a man named David Laamea Kamana, sorry, Kamanana Kapu Mahin Nulani Naloya E Huo Kalani Lumailani Kalakau was elected king. Oh my god. We're just going to call him <laughs> David Kulakau. I saw that name coming up and I was like, whoa. <laughs> they have some very long names and I'm doing my best to pronounce them, so I apologize. But you know, it's kind of interesting because he's a he was in the fold of the Kamehamehas, but he's not a direct descendant. Um, and then we have Queen Emma, who's a widow and there were different factions. And I, you know, Hawaii was a young monarchy. They had never had a queen. But I think what ultimately got him the throne was that Emma's only claim was really through her marriage that's why I, I don't think it had anything to do with the fact that she was a woman. I think it was the fact that because they had a tradition of chiefesses. Those could exist. That Like yeah. women weren't barred from the throne in Hawaii. It was just that he it was decided he was a better fit. So ultimately, David Kalakau was elected king. Um, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on him because he's he's kind of a bridge to the person we're going to talk about but i just wanted to bring him up because he's the first ruler who was not part of this house of kamehameha um and he rules from 1874 to 1891 and he's known as the merry monarch due to his jovial nature and love of parties um just a few highlights from his reign um In 1875, he brought about what's known as the Reciprocity Treaty with the United States. So this is that sugar treaty that everybody wanted to Mm. get into place. And in this treaty, they did give the United States the exclusive use of Pearl Harbor without actually giving it to them outright. And this allowed for the tax-free trade of sugar. Um, He also has the distinction of being the first monarch anywhere to circumnavigate the globe. And really why he did this was to uh, encourage immigration so that people could come work the sugar fields because uh, Hawaii didn't have slavery, but it was a pretty shitty job. He also is known for encouraging the Hawaiians education and reinvigorating Hawaiian culture. In fact, he brought back the hula, which was a disgrace to these descendants of the missionaries, but it was really exciting for the native Hawaiians. And um, his reign is regarded as something of a Hawaiian renaissance. I'm just saying those... Christian missionaries were crazy. The hula is beautiful. Yeah, but it was very sexual to them. They didn't like the shaking hips. And mm, traditionally, it's performed topless. So they didn't like that either. Um, You know, they were just these crazy Christian missionaries. They were scandalized by anything. If you weren't covered up to your neck. Oh, God. Um, Unfortunately for him, he was also easily influenced. So he surrounded himself with yes men. Um, 
not those who would be best suited to serve the kingdom's interests. So this led to a new constitution in 1887 that made the monarchy essentially a figurehead. This is known as the Bayonet Constitution, and that's because he was forced to sign it by a 3,000-member militia. It was either so he's signing it at bayonet point? Basically. basically. Um, so the results of this um, constitution is that the citizenry could now elect members of the House of Nobles who had previously been appointed by the king... It increased the value of property that a citizen must own to be eligible to vote above the previous level that had been set by the Constitution of 1864 and denied voting rights to Asians who comprised a large portion of the population because, as we talked about, the fact the sugar fields needed to be worked. They had a huge influx of Chinese and Japanese immigrants who were willing to do that job. Um and a few of these Japanese and Chinese had previously become naturalized and had voting rights, which they now lost through this co- uh, constitution. Um, this guarantees a voting monopoly to the wealthy native Hawaiians and the Europeans with sugar interests. All of this is a result of the rising sugar interest in Hawaii, which, again, we will get to in our next section. Um, so he dies in 1891. Um, but luckily for him, he named a successor. Finally, somebody learns a lesson. So he names his sister, Lili Ukulani, as his successor. So she is Hawaii's first queen in her own right, as well as the last reigning monarch of Hawaii. So as I keep saying, we kind of blew through this, but we didn't even make it a century and we're already on Hawaii's last ruling monarch. She's both a product. So we we went, sorry, we went from the world's oldest monarchy in Japan mm-hmm. <laughs> to perhaps the, the world's quickest. Yes. It was a true blip. And I mean, honestly, it almost felt like when I was reading this, like a prop, um, a means to an end. You know, I, I don't think you can discount the influence of Western civilization and this monarchy. And I will talk a little bit more about that, but... They very much encouraged the creation of this monarchy, and then they encouraged the dilution of the power of this monarchy, and then they really attempted to set up a couple of puppet kings, and by the time we get to Queen Liliuo Kalani, which we're going to call her Liliu, she was fighting a losing uphill battle. Mm. So she's, you know... She's a product of Hawaii's hybrid culture and an example of everything that went terribly wrong. She's born on September 2nd of 1838. So we're well into the monarchy. We're well into this idea of Western expansion. Um, But she's born in a grass hut on the island of Oahu. Her birth parents were Analea Keohokalole and Caesar Kapaakean. And you don't have to know those because they don't factor into the story um but she's part of the ali'i which is the high-ranking chief class so when you're talking now about she sorry is she the birth sister of the king who's just yes. died or his yes but okay. they were raised by different parents okay. because they were adopted out under this tradition of hanai um and it's interesting because the ali'i 
makes up this class of high-ranking chiefs and the children of the Ali'i are kind of like make up the pool of eligible throne applicants depending on your genealogy, your lineage, who you're related to. All of that's very important. If you're eligible for the throne, it's not necessarily that you have to be a direct descendant of the king. You just have to be a close enough relative. Mm. And um, she's adopted at birth by Abner Paki and Laura Konia and raised alongside their natural daughter, Bernice. So... She's, so the names are already getting more and more Western. They are. And her actual first name was Lydia, which I will okay. get to that in a second. But, um, you know, she's born into a high ranking class, but the people that adopted her were even higher ranking. So this is mm. seen by everybody as a boon for her. This is beneficial. Her birth name is Lydia Liliu Loloku Walania Kamake Kamaka Eha. And this is, she is named for the midwives who delivered her uh, particular ailment she was suffering at the time. So Lili'u is smarting. Loloku is tearful. Walania is a burning pain. Kamaka'eha is the sore eye. The midwife was suffering from a burning pain in her sore eye. And she named the baby <sighs> after this. This is a Hawaiian tradition. They're named after circumstances occurring around the time of their birth. Wow. But her first name was Lydia. So, but she went by Liliu. Um, she's baptized as a Christian. That's why her name is Lydia. And she's edu- educated at the royal school along with the other royal children of the Ali'i, those eligible for the throne. Um, and she was proclaimed eligible by Kamehameha III at, um, as a child. Along with her siblings. So her parents were high-ranking enough that their kids were important. But, of course, the adoption played into it as well. When it was time to get married, she married an American-born man named John Dominus, who is from Massachusetts. Mm. And she knew him as a child. He also attended the royal school. So the royal school was initially only supposed to be for the Hawaiian elite, but then the... uh, influential westerners started sending their children there and so that's why you see a lot of intermixing as well he later became the governor of oahu so he was pretty powerful um they had a very contentious marriage they just didn't really get along and they never had any natural born children but they did adopt or at least liliu on her own adopted several children under this practice of hanai And then after you see the succession of her brother to the throne in 1874, she and her siblings are given the Western titles of prince and princess. Um, So Hmm. you see this influence on the monarchy already because those titles didn't exist uh, in Hawaii. And then in 1877, her younger brother, Leleo Hoku, died. And so she's proclaimed the heir apparent to the throne. So this is a circuitous path to get here she never expected to take the throne growing up but as you can see there's a real succession problem all of the kings we're talking about that came place before her that were alive during her lifetime none of them had children survive them into adulthood um infertility is also a huge issue um so she basically took the throne as one of the last eligible people standing hmm So she's crowned on January 29th, 1891, nine days after her brother's death, but she would rule for only two years until January 17th, 1893. It's a, it's, 
It's really interesting. Um, By the time of her ascension, Hawaii had changed and the monarchy was fighting a losing battle against Western influence and annexation. So her brother fought against this. The previous king fought against this. So by the time she takes the throne, it's really like it's pushing a boulder up a hill. It's just it's like they the Westerners came in and they were like giving them this idea of a kingdom and Kamehameha fulfills this, but then it's almost like, you know, they're using this as a tool and then they start to realize like, oh, this is actually getting in my way. I can do without this. It very much was a means to an end. So yeah. there's three factors that led to both. I can guess what that end was. Yes. Sugar. Well, there's three factors that lead to the rise and fall of the kingdom of Hawaii. So the first one really is we have to talk about this idea of tribal warfare. So Hawaii's introduction of a sole monarchy coincided with the discovery by the Western world and the rise of Western influence, as we've talked about. And coupled with the unstable succession, this is not a recipe for longevity. And this goes back to the idea is that like, you know, when all the monarchies we've looked at previously, they have centuries of history and development of this like myth of the royal family. Like you don't question, um, you know, let's not talk about modern monarchy because people have questions about that, right? But when Victoria took the throne, nobody questioned it. She had centuries of history behind her. Even if you're talking about, you know, Hanover's coming in and taking over, nobody questioned it because they were a member of the, they were in, in the line of succession. They were closely enough related that everybody just accepted that this was, this was the next person in line who was going to be in charge of Great Britain. We don't have that history here. We have an entire monarchy that spans less than a century. So what kind of mythology could they really develop? Um, right. If everybody remembers the beginning, then, you know, yeah. what's the what's And the everybody, history? I yeah. mean, they have people alive that still remembered when there was a chief who ruled Maui and a chief who ruled Oahu. And now you're saying, oh, you're my king? What's a king? I don't understand this. What is this concept? So what's a chief? Before the discovery by the Western world, the Hawaiians had this strict social structure and code of conduct. The chief was it. He was revered as a god. If a peasant let his shadow cross that of the chief, death to the peasant. That's how revered the chief was. But then this idea is that the chief evolves into a king and it's hard to adapt. So is it an absolute monarchy? closer to this idea of what the chief was or is it a constitutional monarchy where the people might actually have a little bit of a say of course the previous kings want absolute power but there's too many competing interests to allow this to happen so it's entirely confusing for this population there it's whiplash from all these cultural changes and so more and more also the population is consisting more and more of non-native hawaiians so if the chief is a god and the monarch is a figurehead, then who's supposed to decide Hawaii's destiny? Is it the people? Is it the Westerners? Is it the is it the monarch? Is it the people or the king? The people want security and freedom, and the rise of Western influence isn't interested in those things. The Hawaiian culture was almost erased by the Christian missionaries. 
and the attempts to reinvigorate it were successful, but it leaves the people in an identity crisis. So all I'm trying to say here is you have a recipe for disaster. You don't have a unified people. Well, you don't have a unified culture. They're trying, but there's too many competing influences. And you've got this influx of immigrants and you've got westerners coming in and telling you how to run your country and stealing all the land i mean at this point the westerners own like one-fifth of hawaii yeah and your your native population has been absolutely decimated we also have to look at the idea of the westerners right this idea of western expansion or as we called it in school manifest destiny yes uh you Cannot deny the, the role. most like hubristic American idea ever. Yes. <laughs> you cannot deny the role of the United States in this mess. So uh, we never really learned about Hawaii in school in this way. All you learn about it is that it's the fiftieth state. So, uh, well, maybe not in high school. Not in high school is what I'm, I'm talking about. Public school in America. Okay. I would say I actually, a lot of this isn't that new to me. I had a whole unit on it in college. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. College. Sure. Yeah. But that's not pretty common. Though. It's not yeah. common. And, yeah. you know, in high school, Manifest Destiny is taught as a good thing. Um, this idealism of American can-do spirit, go forth into the world and conquer. And, like, that's a nice idea, right? But we're talking about conquering other mm-hmm. cultures. It's good old-fashioned colonialism. And as usual, it doesn't end well for the native people. So the Hawaiians are a casualty of America's destiny, essentially. And from the very beginning, we were very mercenary in our approach. It's what can you do for me? Not, you know, what can you do for your country? What can Hawaii do for our country? And also the thing that kind of gets swept under the rug is like, it's not... It's only America's destiny because someone in power has decided that there's something there that they want. Like, America, like, Manifest Destiny, to me, like, as harsh as it, it is on the Native peoples, this, like, Western, westward expansion makes a certain, like, theoretical sense where you're, like, you're just, it's, it's kind of the same as the Ottomans, right? Like, they're just continually expanding outwards. Well, and Going it's built Hawaii, on the idea though, of, like, we successfully built a country out of nothing, Let's keep yeah. going. I mean, it's a yeah. very patriotic idea. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not but the, putting it what down. I, the point it's just I'm it has real like, world consequences. Yeah. The point I'm making is like this idea that it extends across the ocean to this tiny little island chain is like, there's a lot of logistical or like logical hoops that you've got to jump through to make that claim yeah. that that's destiny. And that's why this book, Unless there's something there that you want. That's why this book is subtitled America's First Imperial Adventure. I mean, yeah. it was our first yeah. like real attempt at conquering the globe um you know because hawaii eventually does become the 50th state and it's viewed as a success story except perhaps by some hawaiians you know i mean to this day they still experience tensions that arise from this position um i actually found a website that was the kingdom of hawaii currently located on the island of hawaii occupied by the country of america interesting I mean, they're our state, but there are people there that actually consider themselves to be under American occupation. And no matter where you stand on this, the story of Hawaii is undeniably a case study in Western expansion, obliteration of culture, Christian conversion, and the typical fallout that 
follows from this scenario. Um, And then, of course, I'm going to get to the third factor and that we've talked about a few times already, which is sugar. Sugar! Sugar! So the the crap, like, mm -hmm. by this time in the world, the... I don't know if we can overstate it. Nope. Like the world the, is on a sugar rush. The hunger for sugar is insatiable. Yes. So by the time Lili'u took her throne, Hawaii was in the clutches of big sugar. Um, the United States was one of the biggest consumers of sugar in the world, second only to Britain. The average American citizen consumed 35 pounds of sugar a year. My God. Um, well, I would like question that, except I'm sure that's only like quadrupled. Oh yeah. <laughs> now we now we have things like corn syrup and things like that. Yeah. Um second only to Britain, I think their average citizen consumed like 45 pounds of sugar or something like that. Yeah. Um but this even with the rise of sugar had its own influences. So especially Hawaiian sugar. So when Cook discovered Hawaii, they were growing sugar cane, but they weren't only growing sugarcane they were growing taro and sweet potatoes and everything that they needed to survive they didn't have vast fields upon fields like entire mountainsides covered in sugarcane that just this came later so first you have to look at and this and some of this is going to go a little bit out of chronological order so think of it all as like coming if you think of the short period of time we're talking about it's really kind of like all at once but one of the factors is the impact of the gold rush in America. So you have a huge population boom in California. And this increases the demand of sugar for sugar, which led to an increase in trade between Hawaii and the United States. Which leads to an increase in sugar production. So a lot of the sugar kings that make their way to Hawaii make their way from places like San Francisco. Mm. They see the opportunity and they go. You also can't discount the impact of the American Civil War. So as we talked about, America had an insatiable desire for sugar, which before the Civil War was satisfied by the plantations in primarily Louisiana. But because of the American Civil War, Louisiana sugar production drastically reduced and much of the country wasn't able to get Louisiana sugar. So as a result, this led to an increased market for the Hawaiian sugar, which was already deemed to be better quality, uh, more refined, just better all around. Um, All of this leads to a sugar boom, but it's not the native Hawaiians who are profiting from this. It's never, it never is. It's the white sugar barons who see the market and make their way in wheel and deal they make deals for land they make deals for water rights they they completely drain water basins that native hawaiians are using for fishing to you know um redirect streams to irrigate their sugar fields they had a huge impact on the hawaiian natives um, huge swaths of land are ruled by the white sugar plantation owners, not the Hawaiians. They're determined to protect their own interests at any cost to the detriment of the kingdom of Hawaii. And also, I want to interject that to compound this, it's not only the sugar industry, but you've got the 
companies also growing pineapple and other crops that are operating in this very similar model. So there's pressure coming from many and that, different industries. And the Hawaiian, the pineapple crops actually came a little bit later. They're there, but right at this point in time that we're talking about, like, sugar is it. But I mean, like, this model yeah. is something that's repeated yes. and, like... yes. Definitely. It's just coming from like, basically it's like, okay, maybe the demand for sugar goes away. It doesn't really matter what industry we're talking about. They're just repeating this model. Yes. Like Hawaii is a disposable resource in their minds. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, but you also see this huge influx of Asian immigrants. Um, you know, they're willing to work for almost nothing around the clock. It's not quite slavery, but it's pretty damn close. The only upside is that they actually had rights as citizens. Um, which, as we talked about, were sort of in flux as well, depending on which constitution was in place at the time. But it's it's a little better, but it's still, you know, more explo- exploitation of minorities. Um, so then all of this leads to the overthrow and annexation to the United States. So Lili'u's determined from the very beginning to protect her people's interests, um, her main goal as queen was to rewrite this constitution, this bayonet constitution, to restore power to the economically disenfranchised natives and Asian citizens. Um, this is obviously not popular among the business class. Um, sugar rules everything. And there's also a rising movement in support of annexation to the United States, again, supported by Big Sugar. Um, and they form this committee of safety and they planned to depose the queen. So they basically were like, oh, no, 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 you, You're a figurehead. You have no power. Please try, don't rewrite this constitution. Actually, we're just going to get rid of you, and we're going to annex ourselves to the United States. So the same day this committee is formed, the marshal of the kingdom, Charles Burnett Wilson, I mean, you're noticing a lot of Western names here, right? Uh, yeah. Was tipped off by detectives to the imminent coup that's planned, Wilson requests warrants to arrest the members of this committee of safety and uh, also requests to put the kingdom under martial law. But because the members have strong political ties to the United States minister to Hawaii, John L. Stevens, the requests are denied by the queen's own cabinet because they fear that arresting these gentlemen would escalate the situation. You also have the USS Boston sailing into the harbor with uh, thousands of soldiers who march the streets. They don't fire any shots, but their presence is meant to intimidate the royalists and keep them from fighting for their kingdom. Unfortunately, it works. So on January 17th, the queen was deposed and pro-annexation leader Sanford B. Dole. Mm hmm. You might recognize that name. Speaking of pineapple. Speaking of pineapple. <laughs> he's installed as the... Think about it every time you have dolet people, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Think of this poor Hawaiian queen. Um, he's installed as the leader of the de facto government in place. So he's kind of referring to himself as president of Hawaii at this time. Um, Lili'u temporarily relinquished her throne to the United States rather than to this Dole-led government, hoping that the United States would restore Hawaii's sovereignty to the rightful ruler. Um, Dole's government sends it... So right now you have dueling governments of Hawaii. Dole's government sends a delegation to Washington, D.C. to ask for immediate annexation to the United States. 
Stevens, the minister to Hawaii, proclaimed Hawaii a protectorate of the United States on February 1st. Um, this was done really just to provide a buffer against the domestic upheaval that's happening, as well as protect against interference by other foreign interests, such as Britain. They also enforce martial law. So it's kind of a big mess at this point. The queen is protesting this proposed annexation. She writes a letter at the, in January to President Benjamin Harrison and sends representatives to D.C. By the time the letter and her representatives get there, Grover Cleveland has taken over the presidency. Um, his administration concluded that the overthrow was illegal, and they proposed that she be reinstated. But they wanted... Because he was a lawyer, right? Yeah, I believe he was. Um, so they're kind of looking at this like none of this makes any sense like there's no reason for this unfortunately the proposal for reinstatement included amnesty for everyone involved Lili'u is not down with that Um, she refused because she said under Hawaii law she can't do that they have to face treason charges and the potential death penalty so she loses the goodwill of Cleveland Uh, it kind of feels a little short-sighted right like yes under your law, you feel that like someone needs to be punished, but they're they're offering to give you back your kingdom, like your kingdom. So she was probably you a little it. pissed off. Um, yeah, she did later change her mind, but it was too late. Uh, King Cleveland kicked the issue to Congress to decide what should be done. They found everybody not guilty except for the queen. Um, and uh, what was her crime? Uh, not cooperating, I guess. You know, that was actually never really clear. For not just happily relinquishing her kingdom. Yeah. And so, uh, around this time, the Republic of Hawaii is officially formed on July 4th. Ugh. Yeah. You know, I said I want to do this on July 4th, and then I read that, and I was like, oh, damn. Um, This is why reflexive patriotism is such a problem yeah no i think it's <laughs> like, important to, look we can be happy hawaii is part of america it's great to go there without a passport it's a beautiful state there's a lot to be said for it but i don't think you can pretend like we got it fair and square yeah um in 1895 so a few years after all of this takes place there's a failed rebellion to restore queen, queen Lili'u. Um, it fails and she's imprisoned even though she claimed ignorance of the whole plot. She was tried and sentenced to hard labor which was later commuted to palace imprisonment because they're not actually going to force a queen to do hard labor. Yeah. Okay, I this was what I was trying to remember. I knew at some point somebody was imprisoned in the palace. Yes. And <laughs> so. this was Queen Lili'u. Um, yeah. She was eventually pardoned and went to stay with her husband's family in Massachusetts where she continued to fight against the United States annexation of Hawaii. The initial annexation was voted down in the Senate in 1897, but shortly after was passed by a joint resolution of Congress after the outbreak of the Spanish American war in 1898. So as you, as you may know, Hawaii became a territory of the United States and later became our 50th yeah, and the timing of that is not accidental because we're at war with Spain and what does Spain control but a bunch of islands producing sugar. So... It was awfully convenient. Yeah. So that's the story of the Kingdom of Hawaii. 
it's a sad tale, but fascinating. It really is. But fascinating. I mean, I honestly, we kind of just breezed through a lot of it. There are some really interesting things to look into here if you found this interesting. And you know what angle I found myself thinking about, um, especially given that we were talking about Hawaii and we've previously been talking about Japan and how the there's this common thread here of Western intervention, right? Um, and the Western intervention in Japan that they're now seeing some unforeseen consequences from in this succession crisis or potential succession crisis are a direct result of the Japanese attacking Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like the circularity of that is just why history is so fun, I think, right? No, because, I mean, you know, Pearl Harbor was Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor was a, a jewel. And there's a, you know, it was so strategic. I mean, you're talking about an island chain in the middle of the Pacific. That gave the United States a jumping off point for that entire rest of the world. Yeah. But like this, this Western meddling and then further Western meddling as a result of the Japanese interference in Western meddling. (laughs) Yeah. I just like, I, I, I kind of giggle at like the, the irony of that, but it's, I, I agree with you. Like, this is a really fascinating study of a short period of time, relatively speaking, um, especially relatively speaking in the history of these islands. Um, 100 years in a century is not a lot. um, Or sorry, in a not a century, a millennia, I suppose. Um, But, you know, I think it's this forgotten history. Like, I just wonder how many people travel to Hawaii. And like you said, it's fun to go there because it's beautiful. It's island it's tropical and it's you know you don't need a passport and it's like america's vacation land you know and um sometimes it can feel like that's the reason it's a state because why wouldn't we want this paradise but i think there's a real ignorance of a lot of people traveling to hawaii about the history of how we got it and and you know the whole idea is like there's a palace like you said you went and saw it it's almost treated like a novelty like hey look guys it's the state of america but there was a monarchy here at one point and you never hear the like sordid tale of like the sugar interests taking over hawaii and driving out the monarchy because it wasn't in their best interest they wanted to be part of the united states right and it's so fascinating because you're right you can you land at the airport and you can drive right to the iolani palace and it's the only thing on oahu that's going to strongly remind you that there used to be this monarchy there and at the same time, your next point of call could be the Dole Plantation, right? So you're literally going from the palace to the Dole Plantation and without the proper education about it, making zero connections as to what one might have to do with the other. Yeah. Or like how one started and the other ended. And, you know, I, um, yeah, no, I'm glad you went through this. I, I want to definitely read more about it. And, um, you know, this, this brief history of, monarchy in Hawaii and uh yeah this yet again a woman is saddled with like the end crisis right yep (laughs) well we have gone exceptionally long yes this has been a long 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 time (laughs) but I think I think it's another one of those cases where the end only makes sense if you see the beginning so so I hope that was helpful I recommend that book I recommend reading about it it's it's I I was just blown away by how much was there Read it, and next time you go go to Hawaii, uh, just take a moment. <laughs> and appreciate, you know, appreciate. 
So next time, I'm not sure what we're going to cover. I don't really know either. We'll have to come up with something interesting. Um, But until then. Yeah. Till then. All right. Bye. Bye. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.